informing America's farmers and ranchers. This is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Jesse Allen. And thanks for joining us here today on AOA, Agriculture of America. Great to have you along for the ride and the conversation. I'm your host, Jesse Allen. We've got a busy show lined up for you here today. Coming up in segment two, we're going to talk about the broader economy and look at the uh, latest uh, CPI data that came out here on Thursday morning. Patrick Horan with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University is going to join us to discuss. In segment three, we're going to talk about some of the consolidation in the meatpacking industry and some of the initiatives that are out there to help change that from the Biden administration with Patty Lavera, policy director at Campaign for Family Farms and the Environment. And then at the end of the show today, we're going to have a conversation with North Dakota Farmers Union President Mark Watney. All that and more coming up here today on AOA. First up, though, want to take a look at what is happening in the commodity and livestock markets ahead of USDA's key reports coming up on Friday. Joining us for a conversation, Brian Split with agmarket.net. Brian, always good to talk with you, my friend. How are you? I am fantastic. Jesse, how are you today, bud? Hey, I am doing great, Brian, doing great. Uh, looking at these markets, kind of a quiet mixed bag here Thursday ahead of USDA's uh, big data dump coming up tomorrow. Uh, first off, let's start with corn. Let's talk about what you're seeing on these corn charts right now and, and what we could maybe expect from USDA. I know it's hard to guess, but uh, what are you looking at right now in this corn market? What are you watching for ahead of the USDA numbers? Well, I think one thing to point out is that uh, while the December contract was in delivery prior to expiration, it had made a contract low of 447. And thus far, we've seen the March contract get down to 451 uh, and three quarters. So within a nickel of that low, and then the buyers showed up and uh, we saw a little bit of a bounce. Uh, I think in the very big picture, we're at a good area of support. Uh, we've done some analog year comparisons that you and I have talked about over the last almost a year actually, uh, comparing 2023 to 2013. Uh, that comparison rolls over as the calendar changes to 2014. Mm -hmm. um, and so this particular report in, in, the, uh, in January of 2014 bottomed the corn market uh, the day of the report. We actually made a new low for the move that morning and then finished higher on the day. And that began a uh, about a four month rally into spring uh, where we had some major highs in the April and May time frame it was a big double top that year. Um, and, and I think just so the, the listeners can understand what this report is, it's, it's a mixed bag of numerous, numerous different data points. So I would say think back to the September 1st stocks report. That's essentially the amount of crop from last year that is carried into this year. Um, and that's kind of your starting point. And then you're going to get a, a final production number, which is yield times acres. Um, and so that production number plus that SEP1 stocks number is kind of your big pile uh, that we're looking at. And so now we're going to get a quarterly stock report as part of this report. And the difference between that big pile number and this quarterly stock report implies your first quarter of usage or disappearance. Uh, that will then cause the USDA to come in and uh, adjust their demand numbers accordingly. We know that ethanol grind is running well above the USDA target, possibly by about 100 million bushels. Mm -hmm. uh, we've got corn exports 38% above last year, kind of in line with where the USDA is. Um, so really, I think you're going to see a demand uh, increase on this report. The question is what they do with yield. Um, and it doesn't take a very large yield break or drop uh, in conjunction with maybe 100 million bushel increase in demand to get carry out below 2 billion bushels. So if that was going to make a, a wild guess uh, as maybe a surprise on this report, it would be a sub 2 billion bushel carryout on corn. Well, that's something uh, I'm curious if that does in fact happen. I think that could lead to uh, plenty of short covering in this corn market. We'll have to see. And uh, looking at soybeans too, as you look at those charts, we've been in a downtrend here, Brian, for quite some time. Uh, your thoughts on the soybean side heading into these big USDA reports? Yeah, much like corn, you know, the, the lower this stuff goes and the more they sell it off into the report, I just think it gets more and more difficult for this report to be bearish uh, to the point where the market's going to want to sell off aggressively from here. So I, I feel like you, you uh, might 
think that the uh, the bearishness uh, or potential bearishness of a report has been priced in, which means you know a neutral report to friendly report sends the market back up. Um, you know that 2013 to 2014 analog comparison is actually very close on beans. Um, it didn't start until August, where corn was trading like 2020 or 2013 early in the year, but mm -hmm. in August we had a high on November beans at 1409 and a half. That was the exact high in August back in 2013 as well on the November contract. The days that we made those highs were August 27th and August 28th, so a day apart. Um, and we actually did bottom the bean market from this report as well. Uh, we had a, a pretty good uh, multi-day rally, and then we actually backed off and rechecked the lows one more time before rallying two bucks into uh, the month of March. And so when we think about what's going on in Brazil right now, we have uh, weather that has improved, uh, but now some of the weather forecasts I'm looking at show consistent rain into harvest and not small totals either. I've heard the, the word fire hose, torrential. Yeah. And so if we have a, a bean crop that's sitting in water uh, when it needs to be harvested, that's gonna potentially impact the actual size of the bean crop, delay its availability, and it'll delay the safrina plantings uh, for corn down there. So. Um, the other part of that is when we get producers in the field down there, we're going to see just how bad the damage was in Mato Grosso and Goyas, uh, which is roughly 40% of the country's production. And that's the area that's been sitting in that hot and dry uh, conditions for three months leading into this uh, rain event that we're currently in. Uh, so I, I think you could actually see the, the crop estimates reduced by the USDA on this report for South America. Conab just reduced Brazil by 5 million tons yesterday. And I think we could see some further revisions down the road in February as we get more harvest data. Brian, got about 90 seconds here. And uh, real quick to kind of wrap this up, heading into a big report day. I know we've talked about this before. One day doesn't make a trend, but risk management thoughts for folks to just think about here heading into and through a big report like this one? Yeah, you know, it, it somehow uh, producers always find themselves in, in the position where uh, they wish they had sold more during the summer highs. Uh, now they're concerned about this report ahead and, and what if it is bearish and what happens if the market gets sent even lower. Uh, and, and if that is your concern, um, I would say that maybe the pragmatic thing to do is to look at puts, keep it in a very short term time frame to reduce the amount of premium that you're spending uh, and, and hope that you don't need them. But uh, in, in my own personal bias, I, I have a hard time uh, wanting to be a seller at current levels. Well, Brian, great thoughts as always. I know folks can uh, find more information, sign up for your intel, and uh, get registered for your upcoming conference in Nashville, too, in a couple of weeks that I know I'm looking forward to being at that. Agmarket.net, you can find all that information. Brian Split, always good to talk with you, my friend. Uh, I know it's going to be a busy day on Friday. Thanks uh, for joining us and giving us some perspective here on AOA. We appreciate it. Yeah, Jesse, thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. Brian Split there with agmarket.net joining us here today on AOA. All right, coming up next, we're going to dive into the broader economy and look at the CPI data that just got released this morning. Patrick Horn with Mercatus Center at George Mason University joins us next here on AOA. On the January episode of the Monthly Grind, we talk about the relationship between the U.S. Grains Council and the NCGA with Denny Vitaconner from NCGA and Ellen Zimmerman from the Grains Council. Our mission is developing markets, enabling trade, and improving lives. And NCGA is, of course, a really important partner in making that happen. We do a lot of work with trade policy, trade servicing, and demand building. And NCGA comes along right beside us in trade policy efforts domestically and, of course, demand building, too. You know, they can't go to the Hill and lobby like for more funding for MAP and F and beef. And that's where we come in. That's our job is to go to the Hill and lobby to get more funds. Or if there's a policy or a trade barrier in another country that's prohibiting trade. And so that's where the growers, we start knocking on doors and making phone calls to representatives to try to help this trade along. Join us the first Wednesday of every month on AOA for the monthly grind. It's a show you don't want to miss. Non-attorney paid spokesperson.
Could your house go into foreclosure? Are you behind on your mortgage payments? Does it seem like the bank has no interest in helping you save your home and you feel like you have nowhere to turn for help? Then we have good news for you. Foreclosure Protection Services can help save your home as they specialize in foreclosure assistance. That's all they do. If you're behind on your mortgage payments, being threatened with foreclosure, have been denied a loan modification, or been the victim of a predatory loan, it's critical that you call Foreclosure Protection Services now at 800-926-1701. Their network of attorneys and their agents are available to speak to you now. If you're behind on your mortgage payments, Foreclosure Protection Services can help stop the foreclosure process. Call today before it's too late. New laws are in effect that may save your home. Call Foreclosure Protection Services now at 800-926-1701. 800-926-1701. That's 800-926-1701. In Iraq, our truck hit a roadside bomb. I had about 16 surgeries on my hand so that I could regain function. And when I came home, I needed a new roof due to a storm. And my electrical was deemed unsafe and I was about to lose homeowner's insurance as well. I didn't really know where to go in order to get help. And so I applied for Operation Homefront Critical Financial Assistance Program. They've really been a blessing. Operation Homefront is a safety net. A lot of veterans, they fall through the cracks sometimes. And Operation Homefront, they catch us. It's been a blessing to us. It's a blessing to other veteran families. And it's good to know that when we come home, there are people who are there that care about us and want to see us do well and want to see us succeed. And we feel it and we appreciate that. I would say you guys are angels behind closed doors. Visit OperationHomefront.org to learn more. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed. AOA. Now back to Jesse Allen. Well, we continue to watch broader inflation in the economy, and we just got the new CPI data out Thursday morning. That's the Consumer Price Index, and we're going to talk about that and have a conversation about what some of this data could mean for the potential of interest rate hikes or cuts here uh, by the Federal Reserve as we move ahead in 2024. Joining us today for a conversation, he is a research fellow and macroeconomist at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Patrick Horan is with us. Patrick, good to talk with you here on AOA. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. Well, uh, headline number, let's start there. The new CPI data showing 0.3% month-on-month rise in December. That exceeded analyst expectations just slightly. Uh, Talk about that headline number and just some of this overall data that we saw out Thursday morning just to start. Okay, yeah. So as you said, the headline number increased 0.3% in December. Um, That's slightly above what was forecasted 0.2% 0.2% was, had been forecasted, and it's also a little bit above the percent increase from the previous month. So in November, the CPI rose 0.1%, and December up 0.3%. And that makes for 3.4% year over year. Um, when people talk about inflation and the Fed, they talk about bringing inflation back down to the Fed's 2% target. Technically, the Fed worries about a different index that's called the PCE index, but the CPI tends to get more news attention and it's important in its own right. So that's that's the headline number. And then the core number, which strips out food and energy because those categories are more volatile, that increased 0.3% in December and that lined up with expectations and that made for 3.9% year over year. So as we look at these numbers, I know there's been a lot of talk uh, across media and across the country that the Federal Reserve could start to cut interest rates here, potentially even at their upcoming January meeting. With with this CPI data out here, though, to, on Thursday, your thoughts could we see the Fed start to cut rates? Could this make the Fed kind of pause? Because we know they've been looking for this soft landing of the economy. Your thoughts on what we could see from the Fed after getting uh, these new inflation data numbers? Yeah, I don't think this report changes a ton. Again, there's a little bit more uh, inflation was a little bit higher than expected, which is not superb news. Um, so as you said, in December, the Fed um, 
uh, hinted that they're thinking they may cut interest rates as much as three times for this current year, 2024. I don't think that's going to start this January meeting, uh, short of some major development happening later this month. I think that they're probably going to keep the federal funds rate range the same. Um, we're likely to see an interest rate cut later this year, perhaps in March. Well, and thinking of uh, maybe a later cut, I, I know a lot of folks uh, across the country have been looking at the rising interest rates and and wondering if the Fed has actually got inflation under control. Can they hit a soft landing here for our economy? Uh, it seems like the Fed seems to think so, but there's some skepticism amongst folks across uh, the country here, across rural America as well. A lot of our listeners are there. Talk about that. What What is your view here? Do you think the Fed has gotten inflation under control as you look at all the different data out there, Patrick? Yeah, I would say the Fed has made a lot of progress, but I don't think we can say definitively that we're quite there yet. So we take a step back to uh, the beginning of the inflation surge back in 2021 and looking at what caused it. So I would say it was a mix of things. I think there were the supply shocks, which are painful, but outside of the Fed's control. So things like things related to the COVID-19 pandemic, the Russia-Ukraine war, the Russia-Ukraine war, for instance, leading to skyrocketing gas prices. The Fed can't do very much about that. Um, but that wasn't the, that's not the full story. Another big part of the inflation, in my opinion, um, bigger part of the inflation story in America is that we just let there be too much demand. The Federal Reserve was too slow to raise its target interest rate. Um, ideally, it, in retrospect, it should have started raising its interest rate target gradually back in 2021, and then inflation would likely have not gotten as high as it did. Um, but because it fell behind the bull, it had to play catch up the following year and raise up interest rates very steeply. So you have inflation harms consumers, hurts everybody, and then to bring it down, you have to, especially if it's demand driven, you have to raise interest rates, which is also painful in its own right. That's why you try to get ahead of inflation early rather than wait too late. But that's beside the point. The Fed, the Fed fell behind the ball. Um, they have been playing catch up. And again, they are making progress. Like inflation did peak back in summer 2022. And since then, it's fallen down quite a bit, but it's not quite uh, where the Fed wants it to be. So the, this, uh, the CPI, so this month's CPI says 3.3% year over year. Technically, the PC is a little bit lower than the CPI, mm -hmm. uh, but even then, it's still not quite at two. So the question is, can they go all the way down to two? Um, and a lot, of, a lot of economists think that the supply shocks that were contributing to inflation, those have abated. They've gone away as time has gone on. So what we're left is, uh, is there still some demand that the Fed has to, has to kind of take? The, the, there's some demand inflation the Fed has to uh, rein in without causing a recession. I think sure. the, new, the, the last year was very encouraging. Um, it's just, it's not, a, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's abundantly clear that we're all the way there yet, though. And it's going to depend the next few months. No one knows what's going to happen. Is inflation, will inflation keep falling or will the labor market soften? It's not clear. So I, I would say that the things are encouraging, but the Fed shouldn't rest on its laurels. Well, Patrick, I know uh, some of your research as well there at the Mercatus Center, George Mason University. Um, I, I was looking through some of it, and you have uh, uh, some work you've been doing, the fate of FAIT, uh, F-A-I-T, Flexible Average Inflation Targeting, Salvaging the Fed's Framework. Uh, talk about that a little bit. I, I think that ties in with some of what we're already talking about here. What is some of that research uh, showing you? Right. So so f we call FAIT, F-A-I-T, as you said, Flexible Average Inflation Targeting. It's a bit of a mouthful. In 20, Before 2020, the Fed tried to achieve 2% inflation every year. And they were generally undershooting back in those days. Then in 2020, they said, okay, if we undershoot so much, why don't we be, we're going to be okay with overshooting a little bit to bring the average up to 2%. And it's flexible. That's where the F comes in. It's flexible in the sense that it's not like a strict arithmetic uh, average. It's more, it's like they use discretion to determine what, what constitutes average. It's not like a formula for average. But the idea is to have roughly 2% inflation on average. Now, in 2020, they thought the problem was inflation is, we're, we're used to inflation being below target. They, weren't, they didn't really have in mind inflation going way above target, but that's what, that, ironically, that became the big problem the following year. And the, the, the framework 
my co my co-author David Beckworth and I argue that the framework was unveiled in a way that created a lot of confusion because it, it turns out that they only want to make up for undershoots, not overshoots, and that created a lot of confusion. Well, what do you mean when you say you're doing average inflation targeting? You're only making up for undershoots, not overshoots. So my co-author and I wrote this paper where we talk about how fate can be reframed and salvaged. And the way we want to do that is to go to have the Fed do things a little bit differently. Rather than worry, target inflation directly, target a different variable, and that's nominal GDP or nominal gross domestic product. That's equal mm -hmm. to total spending in the economy. And the idea there is that if you can get nominal GDP growth under control and you can target that and keep that stable, it's going to anchor inflation expectations. Inflation can, can go up and down a little bit, but on average, it's, all, it's going to be about at the target. Um, a good advantage, a big advantage of nominal GDP targeting is that it helps differentiate between this supply side inflation, this demand side inflation. So when you have, when you see gas prices rise, you wonder, is it supply or demand or both? Um, because it could be the Russia-Ukraine war. That's a supply shock that's causing inflation to go up. You don't want to respond to that part. You want to respond to the demand part. With nominal GDP targeting, the great thing is you don't worry about these prices of specific goods. You only worry about the total sum of spending in the economy. Well, Patrick, uh, as we wrap it up here on this segment, uh, what would you say to folks to remember? There's a lot of folks struggling with higher costs and inflation and you know tighter pocketbooks, so to speak. As we look at all this data and look ahead to 2024 here and what the Fed could do to try and tame inflation, what would you say to remind remind folks uh, to think about here in the months ahead? Yeah, I I mean, no one can no one can predict the future. Or no one can know exactly what's going to happen in the future. So the inflation surge, as painful as it was, the uh, most of it is over. The question is, can we uh, can the Fed finish the job and bring it down to target? And I'm hopeful that they can. Uh, it's not abundantly clear. I'm hopeful that they can. Again, the Fed shouldn't rest on its laurels, and I think that's what people should should take away. That most inflation problem has subsided. There's a little bit left, and that's the big question: Can the Fed get rid of this? this extra percentage point or two of inflation to get back down to the target. Well, I know folks can read through your research at Mercatus.org. And we've been talking with Mercatus uh, Center at George Mason University, macroeconomist Patrick Horan here on AOA. Patrick, thanks for joining us on the show. Appreciate it. We'll look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks again for having me. All right, coming up next, we're going to talk about some of the consolidation in the meatpacking industry with Patty Lavera. We'll get to that conversation next. She is with the Campaign for Family Farms and the Environment here on AOA. Paid non-attorney spokesperson. Are you over the age of 60 and been diagnosed with lung cancer? If so, you and your family may qualify for a cash award. Our experienced attorneys are standing by to evaluate whether you have a lung cancer claim that qualifies you for a cash award. The consultation is absolutely free and there is no risk and no money out of pocket. We only receive a fee when we secure you and your family a settlement. 250,000 people are diagnosed with lung cancer every year. You're not alone in this battle. We can help make sure that you and your family are financially safe and that medical expenses are covered. Again, if you've been diagnosed with lung cancer and are over age 60, call now. Don't delay. There are deadlines for filing claims. We're standing by 24-7. Call us at 1-844-903-1744. 1-844-903-1744. That's 1-844-903-1744. Attorney Advertising. William Stephacker Jr. is the attorney responsible for this ad. Main office, Granton, Pennsylvania. May not be available in all states. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Richard Risvet with this market update. Grains and oil seeds are mixed this morning. Beans and products are higher. Corn and wheat are lower. Livestock is also firmly in the red this morning. Now, wheat markets are mostly lower in quiet trade, with Kansas City leading the way down there. Temps are expected to be bitter cold over the next week with sub-zero readings in the plains and Midwest. That'll be capable of doing some damage to wheat that does not have snow cover. However, the recent and ongoing snowfall is expected to provide cover for most wheat. Paris milling wheat features are also lower early today after closing higher for two straight days. Russia also continues to be the cheapest world offer on wheat, with the spot FOB price in the $245 to $247 per metric ton range. While corn futures are trading near unchanged this morning ahead of tomorrow's report, 
And for the past several days, corn has traded within a very narrow range. Weather in South America continues to be mostly favorable, but the center-west portion of Brazil features heat and dryness. Grain and oilseed traders are continuing to consolidate prices ahead of tomorrow's big USDA data dump. Now, the primary focus will be USDA's adjustments to the size of the 2023 corn and soybean crops, adjustments to South American corn and soybean production estimates in light of this year's weather pattern, resulting in changes to U.S. export estimates, potential surprises in USDA's quarterly grain stock survey results and potential surprises in the results of USDA's winter wheat seeding reports. One thing that USDA may do that the trade does not expect would be to cut the U.S. soybean exports for the current marketing year. Both sales and shipments are falling behind as Brazil continues to take market share. The Brazilian cash market shows few signs that its market is worried about a short soybean crop, and we can also expect USDA to bump its ethanol demand estimate for corn, although that still doesn't put much of a dent in the large surplus on the books. We'll also be looking for potential surprises in the wheat stocks number that could reflect adjustments in USDA's wheat feeding estimate. And crude oil prices are almost 2% higher this morning. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Richard Ristvet. Adopt US Kids presents What to Expect When You're Expecting. A teenager learning the lingo. Today I'm going to help parents translate teen slang. Now, when a teen says something is on fleek, it's exactly like saying, that's rad. It simply means that something is awesome or cool. Another one is totes. It's exactly like saying, totally, just shorter. As in, I totes love going to the mall with Becca. Another word you might hear is jelly. Jelly is a shorter, better way to say jealous. As in, Chloe, I am like so jelly of your unicorn phone case. You don't have to speak teen to be a perfect parent. Thousands of teens in foster care will think you're, um, rad just the same. To learn more, visit AdoptUSKids.org. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, AdoptUSKids, and the Ad Council. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed. AOA. Now back to Jesse Allen. And welcome back to AOA. Joining us now as we talk about some of the Biden administration's priorities, especially surrounding the meatpacking industry and competition in the industry. Patty Lavera, Policy Director at Campaign for Family Farms and the Environment. Patty, thanks for joining us today. Hi, thanks for having me. Patty, thanks for the time. Let's get into this. Uh, Of course, at the end of last year, the Biden administration went on their barnstorming tour of rural America. A lot of priorities, a lot of initiatives, a lot of promises made. I know you are looking at some of the issues surrounding the rapid consolidation in the meatpacking industry and the effects on livestock farmers. So set the stage for us. Uh, Talk about that a little bit just to start. Sure. So it's a long list, right? There's a lot of, of initiatives. Um, the groups that I work with that are, are part of this coalition are, are focused on one set of them just because there's a lot going on. And so the, the coalition I work with, we're really thinking a lot about what's working and what's not working in the markets for livestock producers. Mm-hmm. And so on that piece, um, you know, when we're talking about the Biden administration, you know, the, the pandemic and the supply chain chaos that we saw a couple of years ago really just put on the front page of the mainstream news what folks in those markets have known for a long time, which is that we have a lot of choke points because we've really, after decades of not really enforcing um, general antitrust laws or specific antitrust laws for the livestock industry, like the Packers and Stockyards Act, we built a system that's real, real fragile to disruption, and then it happened. Um, So the response to that from the Biden administration is, for the first time in a long time, paying more attention to it, which is great, and we'll take that. There was an executive order from the Biden administration that talks about kind of the whole economy, talking about how do we promote competition in different parts of the economy with a real healthy to-do list of things to do in agriculture. And, you know, meat and poultry sectors were, were very prominent on that list. And so now it becomes a question of what can get across the finish line, because it's it's complicated to update policies, you know, write new regulations. And so we are happy to see the attention paid to this supply chain, and we just want to see a quicker pace in getting some of the stuff across the finish line. And then the last thing I'll say is um, there's also been a lot of attention from the Department of Agriculture, from the administration on kind of what we can do to 
to diversify that supply chain. So there's been a lot of talk mm-hmm. about investing in you know small and medium scale processing plants, and that's all great. I don't. None of our folks are upset about that. People need more options, especially smaller producers um, who you know aren't either contractually tied or kind of stuck with going to the big packers. They need places to go. We saw that, but we think we also have to do the flip side of that, which is make sure there's a level playing field in those markets so that those investments in those new small plants have a chance. And so enforcing the Packers and Stockyards Act is important. There's rulemaking at USDA to kind of update their thinking about how they're going to enforce the Packers and Stockyards Act. And then also at the Department of Justice, they're doing some things and we've seen some action from them that's encouraging to actually look at how these big packers behave in the marketplace and whether they're following the rules. And and to your point, uh, this rapid consolidation we've seen in the meat industry, it's that that big four that we hear a lot about in, in the media and more, that are kind of, you know, they've been controlling the market for lack of a better term and kind of, you know, leading, uh, leading the forefront here of some of the issues that are facing a lot of our ranchers and, and farmers here in terms of the meat industry. It's really, it comes down to that big four as you, as you kind of alluded to here, Patty. Yeah, we have folks, you know, so the, we have um, the coalition I work with, the Campaign for Family Farms and the Environment, is a couple of national groups and some state-based groups from the Midwest. And they talk about, the folks in the Midwest talk about how in one generation, we lost an independent sec- an independent sector of hog producers. It's very hard to be a family-scale hog producer in the Midwest at this point because you know, a huge percentage of those folks were driven out very dramatically, late 90s into the early 2000s because of mergers where the the big, you know, the big packers became the big four uh, and really took over that market and they changed who they bought from. And there's, um, there's a piece of that about like what mergers were allowed to go through and why. And then there's a piece of that of a very old, but very good and underused law called the Packers and Stockyards Act about how meat packers behave in the marketplace, how they treat the, the livestock producers who sell to them. And that just didn't happen at that point. And it, literally in a generation, people were driven out of the hog business, not because they didn't want to raise hogs anymore, but because they couldn't at the scale that they were. And that's been, you know, we didn't run out of bacon during that time. We're not short <laughs> of that product. Mm-hmm. It, it radically changed the structure of that industry. And now we have much larger facilities that are either explicitly controlled by the meat packers because they're corporate owned animals, or they might as well be because there's no open market. You know, those folks aren't going to shop around to see who's gonna give them the best deal. They know where those animals are gonna go. And that kind of relationship tends to be very one-sided and it tends to be to the benefit of the packer. And so that's, we've seen these dramatic structural changes. There's a whole other conversation to have about the chicken industry where they don't even pretend, right? That the company owns those animals from the beginning to the end and the farmers are contract growers providing a service and disposing of waste, right? So this is not an open market where folks have an option to go compete and see who's gonna give them the best deal. And we have folks in the cattle sector who are well aware of these trends and are trying desperately to remain the sector that has some independent producers. So we work with a lot of cattle producers too, who are real tuned in to what happened in chicken because they don't want it to happen to them. And the same thing in hogs. So we need to use laws that are on the books like the Packers and Stockyards Act to say, you know, time out, like some things that are happening that have been, you know, the, the mergers helped, the companies got bigger, but then they also got away with practices they shouldn't have been able to get away with in terms of contracts, how they pay people, how they retaliate against people who might complain. And that's what we're looking for from USDA is an update to their thinking written down that they tell the world, this is how we're going to enforce this law. You know, Patty, you brought up something here that, that made me think a little bit. And I'll, I'll ask you this, um, you know, with a lot of, say, hog producers getting driven out of production with the way things have been and and we'll say the lack of enforcement of the Packers and Stockyards Act. It's it's good to see the Biden administration looking to support a lot of these uh, small scale you know, processing plants and bring more competition to the marketplace. Is it I don't want to say too little too late because I don't think it is necessarily. But has there been at this point a lot of damage done that we can't necessarily recover from, I guess? Talk about that perspective a little bit for us, if you can. It can't we can't say it's too little too late. Uh, There's always time to turn it around. It's not going to be easy and it's not going to be one thing. This is not a silver bullet situation where if they just do this one thing, wham, it's all fixed and we can all go 
take a vacation. You know, it took several decades of, of things being done wrong to get to this point. So it's going to take multiple steps to turn it around. So we're happy to see this investment, you know, in this conversation about supply chains and saying we need more options, like farmers need more buyers so that they can shop around to get a better deal. But pretending, no one is pretending that that's enough, right? So that piece has started and we need other pieces to, that support that to come along, like enforcing how transactions are happening in the marketplace and whether they're fair. So we love that investment, but we want to make the chances that investment success go up by doing these other things. You know, there's lots of other pieces we could be doing if we get to do a farm bill <laughs> this yeah. year. You know, there's things we could do in a farm bill that help with this. There have been conversations about, you know, do you put in place some kind of, you know, spot market or cash purchase requirement if we're packers above a certain size because in huge swaths of the countryside they you know like in Colorado they don't really report livestock prices because there's so few buyers the privacy restrictions kick in so we don't have a cash market for a lot of producers where they could go test it out and see if they could get a better price so you know you could we have had things like proposals from Senator Grassley that say big packers should have to buy half of the animals they're bringing in on a cash market only 14 days before, so they're not locking up the supply. So there are ideas out there. We need to be having a much more robust conversation. What we get often when the, the meat packers are at the table is like, yeah, yeah, there's a problem. We saw that there was a problem, but there's no need for the government to get involved. And we've been doing that for a long, long time, and it hasn't really been working. So we think it's this farm bill we need to have a bolder list of solutions, and then we need to let USDA finish these rules, have them get across the finish line, and start enforcing the Packers and Stockyards Act, and really do what it could do for producers. That it's never really, we've never really achieved that. Um, and then, you know, the last there's yet another piece we could talk about country of origin labeling and let yeah. mandatory country of origin labeling, um, you know, and and convey to consumers who would love to buy a U.S. produced product what actually is U.S. produced. That's the basic functioning of a marketplace is accurate information. And we don't require that when it comes to meat because the meat packers got mad a couple of years ago and they didn't want to provide that information. So, you know, we got a list of things we need to do. Um, we don't think it's too late. We think it's urgent and we think we need to do it fast. We have lost producers, but there are folks who want to get back in. They, they want to raise livestock in an independent way, a smaller scale way. They want to integrate it into a more diversified farm operation. And it shouldn't be so hard to do that. We would we need a competitive enough, like functional marketplace where you could raise animals that way and get paid what you need. Patty, great thoughts. Real quick, how can folks have their voice heard on these issues? Talk about that a little bit. What's the best way? Yeah, so wherever, you know, wherever folks are from, you may, you may have a member of Congress who is on the House or Senate Agriculture Committee. I imagine a lot of your audience is in states where that happens. So they're out and about. It's an election year, whether we like it or not, right? We're going to see a lot of them. Um, talk to them about this and, you know, and push back a little bit if they start talking about, well, we're going to, you know, we're going to nibble around the edge and talk about price reporting. Oh, let me do a study. To be like, no, we need we need firmer action, right? So if you're talking to members of Congress, ask them what they think about mandatory country of origin labeling. Congress has to bring that back. You know, ask them what they're going to do in the farm bill that actually increases marketing options for, for independent producers like cash markets. And if, if you're out somewhere and you see somebody talking about the Biden administration, ask them when they're going to get these rules on the Packers and Stockyards Act finished. And I guarantee you, wherever you are in the country, there's a group thinking about this so ask them a lot of things to consider we're up against the clock patty lavera policy director campaign for family farms and the environment thanks for joining us today thanks back with more aoa right after this teachers are dynamic leaders shaping a new generation they bring a variety of perspectives from diverse backgrounds, innovating how they teach to prepare students for our fast-changing world. Achieving this takes skill and expertise. They're tireless explorers, creatively discovering a universe of solutions, telling stories, experimenting, inspiring, mentoring, connecting cultures, and connecting with each other. Leading by example. Experience the unique joy of helping students thrive. 
Teaching is a journey that shapes lives. Are you ready to begin? Explore teaching at teach.org, a campaign supported by the U.S. Department of Education, teach.org, and one million teachers of color. Over the years, you've brought them into your home. You were prescribed opioids after the C-section, when dad injured his back, when your basketball star tore his ACL. Opioids helped with the pain, and you held on to them, just in case. But did you know holding on to unused opioids puts your family at risk? Opioids are powerful pain-reducing prescription medicines, but most people who are prescribed opioids don't finish their prescriptions. So millions of unused opioids are sitting at homes across the country. And tragically, more than 100 Americans die every day from overdoses involving opioids. What can you do to protect your family? Remove the risk of unused opioids from your home. Pills, patches, or syrups in drawers, purses, and cabinets, anywhere they might be hiding. To find out how to dispose of them properly, visit www.fda.gov slash drug disposal. On the January episode of the Monthly Grind, we talk about the relationship between the U.S. Grains Council and the NCGA with Denny Vitaconner from NCGA and Ellen Zimmerman from the Grains Council. Our mission is developing markets, enabling trade, and improving lives. And NCGA is, of course, a really important partner in making that happen. We do a lot of work with trade policy, trade servicing, and demand building. And NCGA comes along right beside us in trade policy efforts domestically, and of course, demand building too. You know, they can't go to the Hill and lobby like for more funding for MAP and F&D. And that's where we come in. That's our job is to go to the Hill and lobby to get more funds. Or if there's a policy or a trade barrier in another country that's prohibiting trade. And so that's where the growers, we start knocking on doors and making phone calls to representatives to try to help this trade along. Join us the first Wednesday of every month on AOA for the Monthly Grind. It's a show you don't want to miss. Every Tuesday, we're sitting around the table, sponsored by CHS, where we'll be talking with folks from throughout the cooperative system. Join us as we discover what makes cooperatives unique when there are more options to do business than ever before. We'll learn how farmers and ranchers like you benefit from a system where decisions are made by the members that own it. Tune in every Tuesday for Around the Table or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. Every day, our brave military men and women, along with their families, make tremendous sacrifices for our freedom. Patriotic Hearts, a nonprofit organization, is dedicated to supporting these heroes and their families in their times of need. By donating your unwanted car to Patriotic Hearts, you'll be supporting job transition and job fair programs, veteran entrepreneurship, counseling, and retreats for combat veterans and their spouses. Call 800-560-3870 you'll receive a tax deduction and we'll arrange a free pickup at your convenience. Imagine the difference you can make in the lives of those who have given so much for our country. Your car donation will directly impact military families, veterans, providing them with the support they desperately need. Call 800-560-3870. You can become a part of something bigger. Join us in our mission to uplift and honor our military community. Call 800-560-3870 to donate your unwanted card. This is Ernie Johnson Jr. Sports is about overcoming obstacles. And college coaches work hard to help young men overcome Duchenne muscular dystrophy. It's called Coach to Cure MD and you can help. Text the word CURE to 501-501 to donate $25 on your next mobile phone bill. Or go online to coachtocuremd.org. Text the word CURE to 501-501. Help coaches cure MD. Brought to you by the American Football Coaches Association. Informing America's farmers and ranchers. AOA. Now back to Jesse Allen. And joining us now on AOA for a conversation, recently re-elected as president of the North Dakota Farmers Union, Mark Watney is with us here today on the show. Mark, it's great to talk with you again. Hopefully you're uh, doing your best to stay warm with uh, the frigid polar vortex temperatures moving in. How are you? Well, good morning. Doing well. And I'm not actually minding the weather. It's uh, still pretty decent here. It's cold, but 
you know what, we've had a pretty perfect winter, so maybe a week or two of this isn't all that bad. You know, I, I would have to agree. I, I think we could put up with it for a little bit uh, with how things have been, that's for sure. Well, again, uh, congrats to you getting reelected as president of the North Dakota Farmers Union. Uh, let's recap uh, the annual state convention held back uh, in December about a month ago. Talk about some of the things uh, that you heard from members of the North Dakota Farmers Union during convention. What were some of the highlights uh, that you guys talked about? Well, we had a, a very good turnout and the room was full and some great breakouts. So we were able to get a, a lot of input from our members. So the primary area was, uh, you know, get that farm bill done, uh, you know, keep crop insurance whole, um, try to get some enhancement to the ARC and uh, reference prices in the PLC. And uh, a lot of discussion on uh, trying to deal with some of the monopolistic practices where we're seeing a uh, few companies that have too much control that uh, I, I, in some respects, seem like they're unfairly um, profiting at our expense. So you, you can look at the obvious meatpacking, uh, rail transportation, some of the seed chemicals and fertilizers. So a lot, lot more concern in that area than we've seen. Um, other than that, uh, the, a lot of adoption of policies are very similar and uh, just a great time to listen to that membership. So I, I was very pleased with how the convention went. Well, uh, we can get into the farm bill in a second, uh, but talk about some of those other issues you highlighted, some of that uh, consolidation and in various uh, industries tied to agriculture, uh, and walk us through some of that a little bit more, uh, some of the concerns that you've heard from members and that you've seen firsthand uh, on some of those different segments that impact agriculture. Yeah, well, we've been doing a national farmers union program called Fairness to Farmers, and uh, we've been doing quite a bit of work with the Department of Justice and and some of the um, you know, kind of the local policy and, uh, and elected officials to draw attention. But uh, um, we're seeing, you know, when you look at transportation, most of us in North Dakota are very captive shippers. So um, we may not identify the true cost of transportation because it's taken away from not only what we sell, but what we buy, and we just pay the difference. But it's really becoming a huge cost. Um, if you talk to the beef producers, I mean, my goodness, they went through a period of time, COVID kind of identified, uh, and the fire down in the, in the JBS plant identified that, um, you know, there's very few players and they have a whole lot of influence on the price, but that price is not either shared with the consumer or shared with the rancher. I mean, they make record profits, the price goes up, the consumer pays more, and the rancher doesn't make anything. So those are the areas, and we can just expand that out into fertilizer. But uh, farmers are starting to really come together, and, and currently we have an administration, we have the Department of Justice, we have Congress, um, we even have some of the court systems that are taking these cases up. Um, I don't know if we've ever seen all three of our executive, judicial, and legislative branches talking about it. Now, whether we'll get action or not, I don't know, but we're going to keep pushing and, and this has been a problem over multi-administrations for 50, 60 years that we've been ignoring, and the antitrust laws just haven't been utilized like they should. So hopefully we can get some at least attention on this and hopefully some resolution. I couldn't agree more. Uh, resolution on some of those issues, resolution on a farm bill as well. And, and I wonder, Mark, uh, when you talk with folks during convention or since then, um, a lot of folks across rural America are pretty uh, fed up, for lack of a better term, with some of the dysfunction in Congress. And um, we got these different deadlines in front of us right now and trying to get a farm bill done ahead of a presidential election. Uh, what did you hear from folks in, in terms of just some of the dysfunction on Capitol Hill right now? Yeah, we, we that was a big discussion, too. And and I, I mean, it's really kind of sad because in, in October, I was out telling people that we had seen some movement with the leadership of both the House and the Senate to potentially try to get a farm bill done. Well, that fell apart. And of course, we got the extension. And But the reason it fell apart is this, you know, these continuing resolutions and not dealing with the budgets and not this. But in, in many cases, this is money is already committed. It's already been spent. So uh, it, it's one of these things where you know, you do have to function. You got to get your job done. You can't hold hostage everything. So now we're eight days away from another situation where we might just have to do a continuing resolution to keep the government funded. 
because we can't come to an agreement. We've got a, you know, holdouts probably on both parties that are uh, not willing to sit at a table and, you know, compromise some. That's the way this system works. And uh, so what could have been a good discussion in March on farm bill is going to get interrupted probably again by um, these talks on whether we're going to fund the government or not. And uh, so we never get the dialogue. We never get to have the input. I mean, I did my best to get this organization's messages out, uh, but we don't really even get into the hearings much in a sense that uh, they say they're going to work on it and they don't really ever get to working on it. So, you know, you may go and testify or talk about it, but you don't really know if they're serious about taking it up. So mm-hmm. if we don't get started March, um, April, we'll get into August and then we'll have the same problem of an election. And then uh, I wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me if we get that late that we're into a scenario of another extension. So I don't know. It's it, it's just too bad that we can't have the dialogue and, and get moving. Um, there's no reason that we can't get this done. It's it's really part of the job of those elected officials. Well, Mark, great thoughts, and I couldn't agree more with you. We're up against the clock, and I wanted to mention as well the Evolution Ag Summit that uh, North Dakota Farmers Union is going to be hosting coming up here on February 20th. The folks can find more info on that to ndfu.org forward slash Evolution Ag. And uh, uh, we're, we're against the clock, Mark, but I know folks could find more info about that great uh, event coming up here in just a few weeks' time. And We'll have to get you back on the show again real soon and talk with us, Mark. Thanks for joining us on AOA today. We appreciate it. Thank you, and thanks for doing what you do. I appreciate it. Mark Watney, president of the North Dakota Farmers Union, joining us here today on AOA. We're out of time. Come up tomorrow. We'll talk with the new chair of the United Soybean Board, Steve Reinhardt. We'll also talk with Paul Shadegg from Farmers National Company. Have a great rest of your day. I'm Jesse Allen. Thanks for listening to AOA. Do you know how much one stock of wheat is worth? Well, you're about to find out. Wheat is a member of the grass family that produces a dry, one-seeded fruit commonly called a kernel. There are about 1 million kernels of wheat in a bushel, about 50 kernels per stock, which if we do the math is about 20,000 stocks of wheat per bushel. That means that if a bushel is worth $8, then each stock is worth about 0.04 cents. So you would need 2,500 wheat stocks to equal $1. Now that one bushel of wheat will yield approximately 42 pounds of white flour or 60 pounds of whole wheat flour. A bushel of wheat makes about 42 pounds of pasta or 210 servings of spaghetti. Wheat is the primary grain used in U.S. grain products. Approximately three quarters of all U.S. grain products are made from wheat flour. And in the United States, one acre of harvested land yields an average of around 45 to 50 bushels of wheat. So if you ever wondered how much one stock of wheat was worth, now you know. These farm facts brought to you by the American Ag Network. You can't escape a traffic jam. Know what else you can't escape? Seasonal allergies. And you might think you can avoid that coffee stain until... Oh, really? You can't escape a lot of things in life. But you can escape prediabetes. Prediabetes captures one in three adults. There are usually no signs of prediabetes. In fact, most people don't even know they have it. But with early diagnosis, you can change the outcome and prevent or delay type 2 diabetes. Take action by taking the one-minute risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. You might not be able to escape having this song stuck in your head, but you can escape prediabetes. Go to doihaveprediabetes.org today. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention.